Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. So uh, if you were here last week, you know that in our first week back, we started a new series talking about the Apostles' Creed. Um, the big part of the Apostles' Creed we've talked about is kind of this history of the church and, and boiling it down into the basics of what it means to be a Christian, the basics of what it means to be a believer. So what the, the big part of that is that... <sighs> When you have all the things in the Bible, there could be things that are kind of hard to interpret and where different denominations or different parts of Christianity people kind of disagree on. But what the Apostles' Creed does is it sums it all up and says, look, this is the fundamental of what we believe. And then we looked at, the, at uh, Romans and how Paul is talking, and he says, you know, this foundation of knowing what we believe is the breakthrough. It's the start in this new way of being human. It's this new way of viewing others, new way of viewing ourselves, new way of viewing God. And when we walk in that, we can see change and impact and breakthrough in our lives and, the, and in our world around us. So, so we really wanted to kind of get to the basic fact of, the, of that those words at the very beginning of the creed that say, I believe. I believe. Because here's the deal. Placing our faith in the God of the Bible is the beginning of radical breakthrough in your life. And that's what we saw with Lydia and the jailer from last week. And that's what we talked about with Paul and why he, he was so excited and passionate all through the book of Romans where he talks about this faith and this belief. 
And we're going to continue in with that this week. We're going to continue in with unpacking the creed. And I want to kind of remind us what we talked about last week and how we are not preaching from the creed. We are preaching from the Bible but we're using the creed to preach from the Bible. It's not the other way around. Like the Bible is our authority. The Bible is what we go to. The reason we even have the creed is because of the Bible. So that said, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to, uh, we're going to be in the Old Testament. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and we're going to start with verse uh, 5. We're going to read verses 5 through 9, but we're going to kind of unpack the whole story there. And I know what you're thinking. This is a pretty weird passage for Palm Sunday, right? And, and, but what I want us to get at is I want us to see, when we talk about that first line in the creed, when we talk about, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I think that when we look at this story here in Second Chronicles, we can see the impact of what it means to really live out that belief that God the Father Almighty, creator in heaven and earth, creator of heaven and earth, that's what we believe. And we want to see the impact of living that out. Now, before we get there, I do want to talk about kind of when we look at the creed, you can see it broken up into three sections, right? You see kind of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and kind of the implications of each one of those. And that's kind of how the, the creed is structured. If you were here last week, we talked about how the creed was used in discipleship and spiritual formation. So people would surrender their life to Christ, people would begin following Jesus, and the church would take them through um, really months long of curriculum. It was, it was intense, it was high commitment, it was studying the Bible, learning what it meant to be a Christian, and one of the tools they used was the Apostles' Creed. And so you spent this long period of time studying the Trinity, and then when it came on Easter Sunday, they had baptisms, and what they would do is they would say, you know, do you believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then you would reply, I do, and then they would baptize you, right? And so this whole structure is around this trinity. So I kind of want to get at when, in the very beginning of this creed, when it says, I believe in God the Father, what we see at the very beginning, if there is a Father, there is a relationship. If you, even if you don't get into the whole creed and you just stop right there, we see that there is this relationship. So I want to take a second and talk about the trinity, because it can be really confusing. It's one of those things that's kind of a mystery of the faith because we do serve one God, right? Where what the, the word is monotheistic, one God. Mono means one, right? So we serve one God, but that one God has three persons inside of it, which wait, what that doesn't even make sense. Like I've heard people talk about like water, right? So you have water is, uh, you got ice, you've got liquid, and then you've got steam, right? And the, there's these three parts. But the problem with that illustration is you can never have water, ice, and steam at the same time, right? It's either one or the other. And that's not a picture of God. God is all at the same time forever and always, right? So there's this, this hard dynamic of what it means to understand. But you see in Mark 12, 29, and then Mark 12, 29, it's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, but this is what it says in, in Mark 29. It says, the most important one, Jesus is talking about the most important commandment, answer Jesus is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We see that there is one God. But then if we go back to Genesis 1, it says, then God said, let us, there's a community there, us, a plural, make mankind in our image, in our likeness. The word Trinity never appears in scripture. But the principle is all throughout. 
you have uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, 14, 13, 14, it says this, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This concept of all three are all throughout the Bible. Embrace yourself. I'm about to throw a lot of quick Bible verse references at you just because I want to prove this point that even though you don't see the word Trinity in the Bible, there's this picture of one God with multiple persons all working together and all these different aspects of what it means to be the God of creation, right? So you have creation, you've got redemption, you've got sanctification. These are all big words, but, but it's talking about, you know, the creation of the world, the, the, per, um, the, the world being sustained in God. It's talking about the redemption of man in Jesus Christ. It's talking about the sanctification, sanctification is this discipleship, it's this being made holy, this being made perfect that's going on. And you, you kind of have each part of the Trinity we kind of associate with each role there is. But I want to point to you that all three persons of the Trinity play a role in all of this. In creation and preservation, you see that through the Son, these things happen. In John 1, 3, 10, Colossians 1, 16 through 7, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, and verse 10. All through there, you see that Jesus, the Son, is a part of creation. Or the Holy Spirit, you see in Genesis 1, 2, Job 26, 13, 32, 8, 33, 4, 34, 14 through 15, Psalm 104, 30. So when we think about creation, we often think about God. But all those verses talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit also participating in, cre- in creation. When we think about redemption, we think about Jesus. But we see in 1 Chronicles 17, 21, Isaiah 63, 16, and Galatians 4, 4 through 5, that the Father is involved in redemption. Or in Hebrews 9, 14, Romans 8, 11, that the Spirit is involved. Or when we think about sanctification and being made holy, we think about the Holy Spirit convicting us, right? But we see the Father is involved in John 17, 17 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. The Son is involved in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and Ephesians 5, 5 through 525 through 27. Now that's a lot of Bible, I get it, but what I want to do is I want to drive the point home that we serve one God and three persons, and that whole community is playing a whole part in this creation story. And so when we say that I believe in God the Father, what we need to see is that the very beginning there is this relationship that is happening, the inside of the God that we serve. The um, when I was kind of reading and studying this, Jeremy. Bigby has this really cool illustration that I think is the best one that I've seen when talking about the Trinity. If you have a piano anywhere near you or you ever see one, I want you to try this. But if you go up to the piano and you pick one of the white keys, right, and you put your thumb on that white key, and then you skip a white key and hit the next one with your index finger, and then you skip a white key and hit the next one with your uh, middle finger, and you hit all three of those keys at the same time, you have what is called a harmonic chord, Right, So you have one chord, but inside of that one chord, you have three notes all happening at the same time. And it's this beautiful sound that happens no matter where you hit it on the keyboard, this beautiful harmony that happens when all three notes are hit at the same time to create one chord. And that's the best picture I've seen for wrapping our mind around the Trinity. You have these three parts that all play a very important role, but make up the one God that we serve. And the reason this is important is because if we said in the creed, I believe in God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, it no longer becomes a Christian creed. Because every, it could be an Islamic creed. Every Muslim could confirm that statement, could say, you know what, I believe that God created heaven and earth. Every Jewish person could say, I believe that God Almighty created heaven and earth. That without the Father there, 
It loses that relationship that, only la- that is only seen in the Christianity. And this is vitally important because it has huge impl- implications for how we live out our life. So what I want to do is I want to take the, that phrase and kind of break it into two parts. You've got, I believe in God the Father and God the Almighty Creator, right? God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. So you have this almighty, this infinitely powerful God, yet you've got this fatherly figure, immensely personal God. And when we dive in and we study both of those aspects of the God we serve, there's this huge impl- uh, huge implications for how we live in our life. So with that said, I do want to jump into 2 Chronicles now. I want to read that as we kind of unpack this story, and we see how that kind of plays out and is unpacked. I'm going to start with verse 5 and read through 9, and it says this. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of, all, in front of the new courtyard, and he said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, you are, not the, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of all nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it, to, give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and had built a sanctuary for, a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or a plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before the temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us, and you will save us. Some kind of background to what's happening here. Before Jehoshaphat gets up and proclaims this to his people, what you have to understand is the book of Chronicles, you have First and Second Chronicles, and inside of First and Second Chronicles, what we have to actually realize is this is really just one book. It's one book, and the author is trying to summarize all the story of all the kings that have been in Jerusalem, right? And so of God's people. He's, he wants to summarize all of these kings, but he's doing it for the purpose of pointing to the messianic king, pointing to Jesus, right? And so what he does is he leaves out, he, he first he highlights David, and you really see that in First Chronicles, but really the reason this book is separated in two is because the story was so long they had to use two scrolls. So that's why we have First and Second Chronicles, but it's really one long book. And he starts out talking about David, but he leaves up all, all the negative things about David. He doesn't talk about David running for his life. He doesn't talk about David and Bathsheba. He just talks about all the, the glorious moment in David's kingdom because David is supposed to be this picture of what the Messiah is going to be, right? And so you have David, but then in, in the second Chronicles, he highlights the rest of the kings and he's talking about good kings and bad kings, one that follow the steps of David and follow the Lord and ones that don't and the consequences that come from both of those things. And the book actually ends and this is a fun fact. If you go to the very last verse of Second uh, Chronicles, it ends in an incomplete sentence. It ends with the word up. And a lot of times our English Bibles will put a period there. But if you go on to the next book and you look at Ezra, about two or three verses into Ezra, you see the same phrase and you see the rest of the sentence that comes after up. 
So the whole point of these books is the author is saying, look, there's been these kings, these good kings and these bad kings. There's this, this sense of being on the mountaintop and being in the valley. And when you live right and you live righteous and according to God's commands, you can be on the mountaintop. And when you, when you do life on your own, you end up in the valley. But there's going to be a coming Savior who is going to save not just the, the Israelites, but everybody who places their faith in him. And there's this, this beautiful picture pointing to the coming Messiah. And this book is actually written just before the New Testament period begins, right? And so there's this beautiful picture of pointing to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And in this part of the in this part of the book, we read about the King Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat is one of the righteous kings. He's the one that one of those that has lived like God has called him to live. And the they were traveling through and, and God told them not to take over these people and so they continued walking through and they didn't take over but then when they get to where they're going all those people kind of decide to team up. It's like three kingdoms, they're going to team up and take over Jehoshaphat and all of his people and then they're, they're scared for their life. And so Jehoshaphat says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do this community fast. Everybody's going to fast. They're not going to eat. We're going to pray and we're going to worship and we're going to seek God in this situation. And then what we're going to do is we're going to, he gets up and he gives this speech that we just read. And at the beginning of this speech, he talks about this, this God of power, this God of might. I'm going to read verse six again. It says, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of all the nations power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you see he talks about this almighty all-powerful God and that's the, the first part of what we're talking about in this creed God the Father almighty that word almighty God is, is seen all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and there's always this sense of God being bigger and greater than anything that's around him the, the Hebrew word is El Shaddai. If you've been in the church, you might have heard this before. El Shaddai, God Almighty. We see it first in Genesis 17, uh, verse uh, 1, and it says this, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. See, there's this call to good character in front of the God Almighty. And that when I think about God Almighty, this actually happened yesterday. I had this beautiful picture that just, I knew I had this message on my mind. I was thinking through it and we're out playing on a playground and there's this little, uh, I guess, rock formation that they've placed there that you can, it has like a little cave and you can crawl under it and be inside a cave or you can climb on top of it and get onto the rest of the playground where the slides and everything are. And Addie Lee loves to climb. And so she gets to the point where she's climbing up on top of this rock. And when she gets to the top of the rock, she goes, mighty. She throws her hands up in the muscles and goes, mighty. And I was like, man, is that not the picture? She's up high higher. I mean, she's probably double her normal height. She's above everything she's ever been able to see at eye level. She's higher than all of this, and she's able to look down on these kids on the playground, and she's just got this mighty sense, all right? She knows what it means to be lifted up high. Um, There's an old, I think it's an English saying, proverb, but it's a question, kind of a riddle, but it goes like this. Where does an 800-pound gorilla sit? Where does an 800-pound gorilla sit? Think about it. You've got this bigger than anything around it, 800-pound gorilla walking around. Where in the world does it sit? And the answer is wherever it wants. 
right? Wherever it wants, because it is bigger and mightier, and there's nothing you can do to keep it from sitting right where it wants to sit, right? So there's this sense that when we think about God Almighty, no one can withstand you. It's Palm Sunday, right? That's what these, when, if you go back and you read the story of Palm Sunday, that's what they're excited about. They think Jesus is this coming king who's going to come in with his almighty strength and take over and be their new political leader. But what they don't know, what they don't know is Jesus is coming in and he's taking over and he's defeating the powers, but it's not the powers of flesh and blood, right? It's the powers of the Satan and his armies. And there's this sense of this almighty God coming in and people being so filled with awe, so filled with worship that they're throwing these palm branches down and they're worshiping Jesus as he comes in on the donkey. There's this sense of almighty worship that happens when we say, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. Think about the very fact of creation. It says that God spoke things into existence. He didn't have to take it and work and, and find some kind of resource and make turn you know a seed into crops. He created the seed. He created everything from the beginning of time. There wasn't even time for God. He's outside of that. He's great. He's infinite. He's bigger than anything you can think of or imagine. We can't, The only reason we can even wrap our mind around who God is, is because he's revealed it to us. I'm trying to draw this picture for how great and glorious God is, because it changes the way we live our life. You see, when we have a high view of God, it creates in us a new sense of character, right? Because we know that God is infinite and we know that we want to obey and listen and follow him. But we also know that he is greater than our biggest foe. He is greater than our biggest enemy. What would happen in this story? What would happen in this story if Jehoshaphat saw these armies that were raging against them And they started to say, you know what? We can't take over. We can't defeat them in our own power. What should we do? Well, if they're like any other human ever who has looked at a bleak situation, and instead of leaning on God, we lean on ourselves to get through whatever that situation is. And so often, that creates a sense of, of looking for a way in our own ability to overcome our own weakness. And when we look in our own ability to overcome our own weakness, it almost always ends in tragedy, sin, and defeat. How many stories have we seen of people who have made it to the top fall further than anybody else because they've cut corners and cheated their way to the top? It can, when we look at our own life, it can be so easy to just stop everything we're doing and, and go to the, a different pasture. You think about, you know, the, the grass is always greener on the other side. It's a lot harder to water our own grass. It can seem easier to just cut off all current relationships and pursue that one with somebody at work or to click on those links online. See, it could be really hard when money is tight to trust God to provide. So why don't I just take a little money off the top of my business? Or it can be really hard to to raise my kids correctly, so why don't I just put a screen in front of them? It can be really hard when God to to do life the right way. We talked about that, right? That that new humanity, leaning into God's righteousness, leaning into his power, and living as a person with character, that is not easy. It It requires us to see that God is bigger than what we're going through. He's bigger than whatever we're facing. It also requires us to look at ourselves and realize that we are weak and that we must live and follow according to what Christ has commanded us. 
when we think about God and how he can, can help us and will help us in these areas, and we look at and we don't think he will, we'll do everything we can to find an earthly shortcut. See, when we don't have a high view of God, we begin to try and have a high view of ourselves, and we make our own selves God. We lack character. We don't think God can handle our situation. We don't think we really need to obey him. But you see, what we, we don't worship a small and limited God. We worship an all-knowing, ever-present, infinitely power, above all, greater than all God. It says in Jude 25 that the only, to the only God and Savior be the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. To him who sits on the throne and, the lamb, uh, to, and to the Lamb be praise, honor, and glory. That's Revelation 5.3. To, to our God and Father be the glory. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Glory to the righteous one. To him be the glory for the church. Blessing and glory be to our God. Ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength that is his. Glory to be God. Glory to God in the highest. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. Give glory to God. Tell the truth over and over again. When we look at the Bible, you see God is a glorious God above all. And whatever situation you're going through, whatever thing, whatever bleak area there is in your life, and you feel like you can't go any further, listen to me. It's not time to try and figure out a way to cut corners. It's not try, time to try and figure out and do what you want to do. Well, if we look back at our story, what did they do? They fasted and they prayed and they worshiped. They turn to God, not in a God saying, please use your magic to make my life happy. They said, no matter what, the situation is dark, but we are going to plead with God to move on our behalf, and we are going to worship him. We are going to worship the God Almighty. We are going to trust that he has power, and that transforms the way we face situations. It transforms our character, because now we live for him and not ourselves. There's this sense of when we think about God, we need to see this all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God, and it should create this all-inspiring worship inside of us that will change the way we live our life. Do we trust him to provide? Do we trust him to to be ever-present in whatever situation we have? I forget where I was reading it now, but there's a story of this uh, Spanish invader. And, and he kind of comes into these villages and these towns and he takes them over. And most of the time he kind of has the people, you know, they don't like to be conquered. And so they, he has this negative image. But there's this one city that he comes in and he takes over. And the people were in utter dismay before he was present. And, and, and so he comes in and he, he offers some organization and some leadership and, and some wisdom to the these people, and they realize that their lives are really better because this guy, this Spanish conqueror comes in. I wish I could remember his name. It's a true story. And so he comes in, and the people are, are glad. They're happy to follow this, this new king that they have. They're happy to follow this new conqueror. And so what they end up doing is they actually end up turning him into a god. They, they consider him deity, <laughs> and they build this statue in the in kind of the, the village square, and they build this statue, and it's up higher than anybody could reach. So you kind of have this huge base to it, and then you've got the, the, the statue of this man is up above so that everybody who's around can look up and see him, and he's higher, and he's above everybody. And I think sometimes we get to a place in our life where we, we lose sight that God is bigger and higher than we can even reach. But the problem with that illustration is it's just one side of who God is. 
Because while God is bigger than anything we face, he's above all, he calls us to righteousness, he calls us to be blameless. While that is all so true that he is this almighty creator that we praise and we worship, we also praise and we worship him because he is also a heavenly father who is immensely personal. If you keep reading at the the end of our passage in Uh, 29, it says this, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or the plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. They know that when they look at God and they're crying out in worship and they're asking him to move, they know that he's not above all, that he's there intimately in relationship with them and he will hear them and he will save them. One of uh, Lauren's fun facts that she likes to point out to a lot of people is when we talk about, you hear people say, we need to get back to the religion of our forefathers. Well, the religion of our forefathers was, was deism, right? So they believed in this God that was more like a watchmaker where he would created all of creation. He sit it into motion and then he sits back on his throne and watches, Right? He's not involved, he's not personal, he doesn't move for his people, but, but what he does, that, but that is this false image of who God is. That is this God Almighty, but it's not this intimate Heavenly Father that loves us. And some people have this view of God being so infinite and so powerful. And man, I, there's a, a couple of theologians and even pastors that I read and listen to. I'm, thinking about, I, I'm not going to say names, but I think about one that I really followed a lot when I was in college. And I'd hear him preach, and I was incredibly moved at his high view of God. He saw this authoritarian, above all, creator God that I kind of lacked, I kind of didn't really ever think about God as this, uh, this powerful, supreme being. And so when the, the pastor talked about that, it really like drew me in. I saw in, the, in Scripture where God created us for his glory, and, and that really drew me in. But the problem with that is it, it never made its way to the personal part of God. See, while God is so big and so infinite, a lot of times when we hear pastors who preach that, it's almost like they take John 3.16, instead of it being, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, it's that for God so hated the world that he had to give his son so that he could be in relationship with this. All you ever hear about is the the sin in people's lives and how guilty you should be and how you're a, a terrible person because you're a sinner and you need to surrender your life to Christ and you need to follow him. And, and it's kind of this belittling message that's preached because we have this angry God who's mightier than all and we have to live according to his standards and that is that falls short for who God is because God is not this God that hates humanity so he gave his son so that he could be relationed with them he loves them so much his heart is broken by their sin it's broken when they have a low view of him so he sent himself in the form of Jesus that his only son to die on the cross so that he could be in relationship with this created people that he loves there's this sense that God is almighty, but he is also all personal. Matthew 7, 11 says that if then, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now this passage is, is 
really interesting because you're like, man, I'm not an evil dad. Like, why would, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, and I'm like, I'm not evil. I love my kids. But it's getting at the fact that I, like, as a father, as a human being, I have a sinful nature. And I have a tendency that even when I want to give a good gift, it can backfire, right? And, and it doesn't matter who you are in this room. You've got a dad. And even if you've had the best dad in the world, I try to be the greatest dad I can be. But I know there's going to be negative things that I pass on to my children because I'm not perfect, right? I'm a fallen father and I try to do everything I can, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect. And one of my biggest flaws is I really, really, really love sweets, And I can already see that I've passed that on to my oldest daughter. She loves, the girl loves a donut, right? She loves a donut. We can't even say the word. We have to call them circles around her because if she hears it, she wants one. Well, there was one day I thought I'd be a really good father and give my daughter a good gift that she would love. And that was a donut. What I didn't realize is that her babysitter had was also going to give her two donuts and that her mother was going to give her a donut. And by the end of the day, she had four plus donuts that day. (laughs) That's too many donuts for a three-year-old, okay? And so there's this sense of like, it was a good gift. I thought it was going to be a good gift, but it came with all these other ramifications, things that I didn't think about, and and it fell short. Ultimately, it fell short. Well, God doesn't give bad gifts, Sometimes we're in dark situations and we just don't want anything more than for God to get us out of that. But sometimes God has a purpose for our pain. He didn't create evil, but he is with us in that moment. And what I want you to see this morning is that there are times where you might feel like you are alone, but you are not alone because the Heavenly Father knows every hair on your head. He, cre- he literally created, we talk about this creation, he created every star in the sky, yet he knows your name. He created every galaxy that you see. If you, you could just go on NASA.com and look at the different galaxies in the vastness of space. Yet he created you, per, he knitted you together in the womb of your mother. God is intentional when he designs you. He loves you. He is an intimate father. He is a personal father. You're not alone in the darkness that you're in. You're not alone in the depression. You're not alone in the, in the heartache. You're not alone in the financial hardship. You're not alone in that relationship. God is with you, and he is fighting for you. The, the, the implications for knowing that God is there, and it's not just this all-powerful God, but he's also this all-intimate, loving God. And it makes me think of, if, um, and I got to listen to Rika, Rika McRoy's testimony. And it's, uh, the podcast is called The Art of Holiness. And if you really want to like be moved by God in a testimony, look up The Art of Holiness podcast and listen to Rika McRoy's, um, I hope I'm saying her name right, <laughs> testimony. But as she's given her testimony, she gets to this point, and I haven't seen this movie, so I can't vouch for it, so I don't know if you should watch it or not. Um, But she gets to this point where she starts describing uh, a movie called A United Kingdom. And in this movie, A United Kingdom, there's an African king, and he falls in love with a a white British woman. (laughs) And as you can guess, as they fall in love, he goes back to his kingdom And there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of political unrest. People are not happy about this relationship. It is not received well. And as they go back and and they kind of navigate what this means for them to be together, um, 
a woman gets pregnant and they have, they have, so they have this baby on the way and the king has to go back to um, Britain to settle the citizenship. And so the, the woman is left alone with the people in the kingdom and they do not treat her well. I haven't seen the movie, but I get this picture of the parent trap, which I have seen. And you guys know that the twins kind of team up to, to get the, uh, what is it, the girlfriend out of the picture. <laughs> And so, so I get this, the, the, Lauren says Meredith. So, so I get this picture of these, the people coming together and they're doing everything in their power to aggravate, torture, get this lady to just give up. And you kind of get to the end of the movie and then the, the people who are doing everything they can to, to get this, this lady to give up, they realize that, that she is very strong. And they, the people that are rising against her, they say this, and listen to me, listen to this, it says, We have underestimated her, for she is a woman who knows she is loved. We underestimated her, for she is a woman who knows she is loved. There is no doubt you have battles that you are facing in your life. We know from the Bible that the battles we face are not against flesh and blood, but the Satan and his armies are doing everything they can to get you to stop following Jesus. They're, getting, they're doing everything they can to get you to put your eyes on your own ability, to take your eyes off of him, to think that either he's just this high removed God or that he doesn't have the power to overcome. They're doing everything they can to stray your attention. But listen to me, you are a person who is loved and when you have the strength of an almighty heavenly father behind you you can persevere in whatever you're going through you are loved by an immensely powerful god that gave his only son that's what this whole book is giving is is giving you over to it's what the chronicles is pointing to if you keep reading in this story, verse 14 talks about how the spirit of the Lord came upon one of the citizens and he stands up and he says, listen, king, listen, people, you do not have to be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army that comes against you for the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17 says, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord. He will give you Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. It says that they fell down and they worshiped God. You keep reading the story. You have, there's these three armies that rise up and they're coming against the people. And what happens is those three armies end up fighting each other and taking each other out. And when they come up over the hill, coming up to where this battle is, they look out and they see nothing but defeated armies. They don't even have to lift their sword. They walk into the plunder of these armies that have fallen. God fights the battle for them. You serve a risen Savior. Listen, we're going to talk about it next week. But you serve a God who gave his life for you. He is greater than anything you could ever imagine. He is above all, but he is immensely personal and he is with you and he loves you. God revealed himself in Jesus and you have life everlasting. You have strength in him. We stand up and we say, I believe in God, the father, who is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. We have to have a high view of God and this has to call us into being people of character because we are also people of this high view of God Yet he's not too high to give himself up for you. That's not the kingdom that the world preaches. The world talks about you being the king of your own life, you being the ruler. That's what the world preaches. 
But our Bible teaches us about a God who is so great, a king who is sitting on the throne, a victorious king who humbled himself and gave his life for us. You are a person who is loved. And that person and that God that loves you is greater than anything, any job, any person, any family, any hobby that you would try to give yourself over to here. He's greater than any idol you could create for yourself. He is the infinitely power, powerful, immensely personal God. We serve an 800-pound gorilla that chooses to sit next to us and hold us gently. Rest in the arms of a father that loves you. You're not doing life alone. I'm gonna pray for us. And then again, we're gonna recite this Apostles' Creed. And as you recite this creed, think about God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we say that first line, I want you to picture that heavenly Father who is almighty creator of heaven and earth above all, yet intimately near all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence. I pray that as we leave this place, as we think about the creed, we think about the promise of scripture, we think about what it means to worship you. I pray that our lives would be just simply all inspired worship, that we can be people of character because we know our God is so big, but we can also be a people of love because our big God loves us. Yet while we were still sinners, you gave it all for us. Let our lives be marked by the worship of an almighty heavenly father, creator of heaven and earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Say the creed together. I believe in God the Father almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. (laughs) He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.